0: welcome to the echo community church podcast at echo we're all about being and making disciples of jesus christ and on this podcast you'll hear solid teaching from the bible from our pastors at echo thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message Um, how about a bonus message this morning you want a little bonus message Okay, Okay. I wasn't expecting that, but here it goes. Um, I got to, you know, something just bubbled up in my heart when I heard uh, Moses share from Psalm 23. He, just, he testified just a moment ago about this last week. Just feeling some anxiety related to the economy, related to business, related to numbers. Um, yeah, if you do follow economic news at all, you're hearing some words right now that to some send Shudders and anxiety and fear. What are some of the economic buzzwords you're hearing right now? Recession. Hairline. I get mine. I've been dealing with recession since I was in high school, right? But no. Recession. What else? Inflation. And what does that lead to in our hearts a lot of times? Anxiety and fear. And that's understandable. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, when we were planning out our sermons for the rest of the year, um I had it on my heart, not next Sunday, but the next Sunday, um, two Sundays from now, to bring to you some wisdom, some ancient wisdom from the Bible that God brings to us about the economy and how we can rest in the Lord, whether we have a lot, whether we're in prosperity or in recession, whether we're in harvest or in famine. And their evergreen principles. And I believe if you'll make it a point to either, you know, if you can be here in person, that it great. If not, you know, get the study guide or the podcast from that week. I'm going to give you some things from the Bible. They're not my ideas, biblical ideas that you can apply right now to prepare you to live wisely and financially. That will lower your anxiety, that will lower your worry, but it will increase your preparedness to be able to serve the Lord without being distracted and consumed by economic uncertainty. Cuz one thing I can't predict is tomorrow's economy. Can't predict that to you. Now for a subscription service, I'm sure somebody will, right? I can't. I can tell you that the Bible talks about people in times of prosperity in times of recession and times of hyperinflation. In fact, if you I don't want to get into the sermon this morning. I won't do that. But uh Romans or Romans, Psalm 23 Verse 1 is what Moses just read. And here's my little bonus, it's not even a message, it's a bonus uh, thought. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. Huh. You know one thing, that inflation, uncertain job status, and tightened economics, One impact those things should have on our heart is that we need to go back to that and differentiate again between what I need and what I greed. Now, what does God promise to provide for all of us? All of our needs. Needs. Is it possible that you and God define need differently? Yeah? When things tighten up, For your budget, when money you were expecting doesn't come in, income decreases. Or when bills that you already have get higher or unexpected things happen, that creates tension. When expenses rise or income falls, things get tight in our hearts. And if they're happening simultaneously, that's pretty worrisome, isn't it? I don't care who you are when income is going down and expenses are going up, you best go to your spreadsheet and take account of what's going on here. I don't have a spreadsheet. Okay. That's Dave Ramsey coming in February. All right, look, here's what I want to tell you. One thing you should be doing right now and it's good for all of us to do regularly is look at my expenses and asking the difficult question, is this something I need? Let me offend everybody at once here. Okay, How many shoes do you really need? I'm glad you answered that way, because here's what that's attached to. Watch. Well, I need this to go with for this occasion. Well, why? Because I can't show up with the wrong shoes. Why? Well, because here's the real answer. Because someone I might not even know or might not even care about, I need to impress them. Is that a need? Yes. No, it isn't. And yet, we can find ourselves saying, God isn't providing for me, and you're expecting him to underwrite your excess, not your needs. Oh, that doesn't bother me. I only have two pairs of shoes. Great. Do you need the fastest internet speed? Some of you might. Do you need the Platinum Plus Cable Plan? Well, I do because that's my outlet. That's my. You don't need that. You want that. You don't want the bonus message anymore, I know. <laughs> but this is a foundational principle. Well, what's the foundational principle? Give it to me. I'll give it to you. Contentment. You wouldn't be in nearly the financial duress that most of us are if you experienced contentment. Because your duress is related to this. I might not have enough money to buy everything I want. I want a new kitchen. Great, that's not evil. But the priority you're putting on it might be unhealthy. Two-thirds of the... three quor- 90% of the world would like to have the kitchen you have now. And their needs are clean water today. Hopefully I have a meal. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm much more content when I have more things. Then that's not contentment. Contentment is I can live at peace when I have a lot I'm content because I don't feel like I need to have more. I know a lot of wealthy people who are totally not content. They have five houses. You know why they're not content? They don't have six. Once I finally get that new kitchen, I'll be content. You won't because now your new kitchen is going to make your old living room look older. (laughs) Stop me when I'm lying. So, pastor, should I just not remodel anything? No. But I'm saying don't be... Don't be motivated to remodel based on the fact you think it promises you contentment. If you don't have it now, you won't have it then. Then, when income tightens up and expenses get higher, you don't have to panic. You can go to your principles. Well, if income is coming down and expenses are getting higher, I can take out of my budget non-essentials. Oh, I don't want to have to do that. That's a sacrifice. No. No. Sacrifice is not giving up non-essentials. Sacrifice is giving up essentials. Stop me when I'm lying. Pastor, this isn't what I was hoping you would say. I was hoping you gave me the verse that says, if I abracadabra, then extra money is going to come into my mailbox. That's prosperity gospel, and I don't teach that. I teach contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That means if you have a lot, but you're content, that's great gain. That means if you have next to nothing but you're content, that's great gain. I found that in some of the darkest slums of the world where I run into children and adults who are joyful and thrilled and happy living on $2,000 a year. They're not... Feeling, oh, if only I had what the rest of the world has, then I could finally be content. They've learned to be content. How? What school do you want to go to to learn contentment? You want to go to that one? Well, Pastor, listen. Before we even unravel all these economic things, you've got to get a handle on what you really need. Because then you can be happy when you say, "The Lord is my shepherd." He gives me everything I need. And you know what what God's blessings are is when he gives you above and beyond even what you need. I have learned in my life what it's like to have a lot, what it's like to have a little, and what it's like to have in the middle. And I am learning to be content and all those things the biggest economic principle I can give to you from the Bible is if you can let the Holy Spirit teach you contentment, all these other financial things will fall neatly into place for you. Now, you may need to do some work and some discipline, but it's wrong for me to say, I'm going to go spend to get everything I want, and it's up to God or somebody else to backfill my greed. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches contentment. But we got to get a handle on what we need versus what we greet. Yes, God will provide for me all my needs. He will supply my needs according to his riches and glory. My needs. But I think maybe for some of us, it would be wise for us in these uncertain times before we jump off the ledge and say, I'm struggling because I can only buy eight pairs of shoes a year instead of 16. Most of the world would love that problem. Are you saying it's wrong for me to have shoes? No, as long as the shoes don't have you. Is it wrong for me to have a second home? No, as long as that home doesn't have you. My question is, can you be content without that many shoes? Can you be content with a lesser cable plan? Can you be content with eating out less? Well, you don't understand, it's inconvenient to blah blah blah. blah. Well, listen, convenience isn't part of the equation. I have offended everybody in the room. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. Okay, I'm going, you're drinking it in? Good, okay. Yeah, no, I don't think I should keep going. <laughs> no, you weren't ready for this. When you were ready for the end, you want to hear about Paul being beheaded, not your budget, right? Like that's, that's. <laughs> I wasn't planning on that, but it's been in my heart for a while. And I don't say that to condemn you. I really want to help you. Some of you that are on the other side of this and say, I've learned that in my life. I'm learning that in my life. You're like, yes. Because other than that, any conversation about budget, about debt, about spending, about income, about expenses, it's all arbitrary until you say, I wanna learn to be, because what we're saying is until you cross this finish line, you can never be content. And I say, you can be content, you can be content now. And then you can use that contentedness to look more responsibly at your income, at your expenses, at your debt, at your cash. We're in a time right now, which I can explain to you more fully. Listen, the Israelites, did they not, did God not use Joseph to prepare the Egyptians for a recession? Did he not use Joseph to say, listen, market's up right now. Amazon's $3,600 a share, but it's going to tank. Don't put all... Listen, we need to take some cash and put it away now while we have a surplus so that inevitably when e- economy shuts down, we've got something to be able to live. And I will tell you something. You shouldn't be eating the same way in famine as you do in harvests. Right? You got to adjust your expenses. And they learned that. I'm way off on another message this morning. Let me bring it all back in. I don't know why I got there. I guess someone needed to hear it because I couldn't shake it this morning. So I'll end there. It's not a condemnation. My thing is, one of the greatest gifts you can ask God for economically is to teach you to learn contentment. And I will tell you one of the ways of getting there is you have to say, God, help me to not care so much about what other people think about the economic status of my life. Because we spend money buying things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. And a lot of times we spend money we don't have doing it. If you can break that cycle, you'd be all right. You'd be all right. Then if God gives you extra and you can have 30 pairs of shoes, fantastic. But if he gives you just enough and you've got two or three, praise God for that too. Cool? All right. Let me move to something more positive like the end of Paul's life and his impending death. Let's get there. (laughs) Acts 28. From Jerusalem to Rome. That's the book. We started in Jerusalem. Now we're in Rome. But what is the thing that Luke wants to tell us got from Jerusalem to Rome. What is the thing that we're tracing from Jerusalem to Rome? Does anybody know? Uh, First service, give them a minute, and then if not, give them the right answer. The gospel, exactly. The gospel is not advice, it's news, and news in the ancient day traveled differently than it does today. Where would you be today if the gospel didn't make it to Rome? You'd be in bad shape. Because how would you have ever heard about Jesus if the news died out with the people who knew? If no one wrote it down. If no one got it to Rome where it could be translated into Latin and pushed out from there. Where would you be today? I, I wouldn't know anything about Jesus. And if I did, it would be from something that was unreliable and probably a conspiracy theorist. But because the gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome, you and I have this today. Now, I already took a bonus message today. So if you want to get the whole research notes from today, you can scan that. You can download those notes. You can go for it. But uh, we're going to end the book of Acts today, which is awesome. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and you've made it to the end. Those of you who just started attending a couple weeks ago, that's fine. You get credit for the whole course. Now, I'm excited about this. I don't know if you care or not, and that's fine. I'm excited as a pastor. I'm like, we set out as a congregation to study an entire book of the Bible, verse by verse, and we've done it. Praise God for that. And I promise you this. If you've if you've retained even 10%, 20% of what we've talked about in Acts, it's going to help you throughout the rest of your Bible study for the rest of your life. It has so much information there. Just about Paul who wrote like half the New Testament. Every other letter in the New Testament that Paul wrote, your understanding of that letter will be improved because you know more about his life. You know where he was when he wrote the letter. You know what was going on in Paul's life when he wrote to that group of people. And your, your understanding of the Bible is going to expand exponentially. But now we come to the end of the letter. Paul is in Rome. He's not there as a totally free person. He's not there as a condemned, convicted prisoner. He's there as an uncondemned prisoner awaiting to stand trial before who? Caesar. Caesar. For God so loved Caesar that he sent Jesus first and then sent Jesus to Paul. And then of all the other times, Paul could have died and gone to heaven and enjoyed his reward Jesus preserved Paul so that he could get to Rome and stand before Caesar. And yet, in a very unsatisfying way, Luke's account of Paul's life will end without him telling us whether Paul ever got to Caesar or not. This book on one way ends in a very unsatisfying fashion. It leaves some very obvious questions. But what Luke does give us is a very short 14-verse, two-paragraph idea of what the last two years of Paul's time in Rome, at least this go-around, looked like. So he's made it to Rome. He was welcomed by the Christians. And last week we found that Paul checked into his own private lodging, which is interesting. He was allowed as an unconvicted criminal to live not in the the dungeons or not be thrown into jail somewhere. He was allowed to live under house arrest, under guard, but in his own private apartment or his own private condo in the city of Rome. Now, when you think back early on in Paul's life, he did a lot of traveling into new cities. He loved traveling to big cities. What was the first thing Paul usually did when he got into a new town? Went to a synagogue. To what group of people? The Jews. And what did he do there? He preached about what? About Psalm 23 and needs and greeds and shoes? No, he would never do that. That's the terrible idea for a pastor to do. What did he talk to them about? Jesus, the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. He helped the Jews try and understand you're looking for a political leader and, a, and an actual kingdom with walls and forts and geography and square miles in a government. God's kingdom is going to be that, but God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And it sets up not on land, it sets up in people's hearts. And he was trying to explain this. Every time. And what was the result of Paul's preaching every time? It did one of two things. People either received it and converted and became Christians or they got really mad and ran him out of town. Peace or violence, and usually a mixture of both. So now with that in mind, now Paul's in a new city, but he's under house arrest. So what can't Paul do? He can't, yeah, he can't go to the synagogue Can't go find the Jews. But watch, most of us would have written off this waiting period. I'll tell you right now, if I, and I don't spend a lot of time hypothesizing about this, so don't be a couch psychologist here, but if I were awaiting murder trial, I'd be on Hallmark, first of all. But no, if I were awaiting, that's more Matlock. But if I were awaiting a trial before a judge, and I didn't have a trial date, I'm just waiting until they come and tell me it's time, I know me well enough to know I'm going to be a little uneasy. I'm going to be worried, not going to be sleeping well. I'm going to be obsessing over this and worrying over this, or I think I would be. I don't have anything to compare it to, and yet that's not exactly what we find Paul does during this two-year period of waiting that he's in. Let me read to you verses 17 to 22. Three days after Paul's arrival, this is awesome, he called together the local Jewish leaders. He couldn't go to the synagogue, so you know what he does? He brings the synagogue to him. And how long did he wait after this long recovery from shipwreck and a 60-mile hike? How long does he wait? Three days. He sends out an invitation to the local Jewish leaders. Question, how did they even know who he was? We'll find out in a moment maybe, right? He says to them, the first word, what does he call them? That's only what a Jew would say to other Jews. So how does Paul want them to see him? They want, he wants these local Jewish brothers to see him as their brother. In other words, I'm a Jew. I've never turned my back on the Jews, and I want to talk to you as Jewish brothers. I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed, uh, arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people. I had done nothing against the custom of our ancestors. Well, the Romans tried me in court and wanted to release me because they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to countersue or to press charges against my own people for slander, for libel, for defamation of character, for breaking all the the court rules. I want you to see here that Paul's acknowledging he has grounds to countersue the Jews who threw him in jail in the first place because they filed false charges against him. And that is actually punishable under Roman penal law. And so he's saying, I have a right to get revenge on them. But that's not why I'm appealing to Caesar. Verse 20, I asked you to come here today so we, number one, could get acquainted. Number two, so I could explain to you that I'm bound with this chain because, number three, I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. Now, he's just unloaded a lot of information on people he's never met listen to their response the first 12 times i read this i didn't see how evasive in some ways they were how savvy and carefully worded their answer was why they don't press him further on details about all this stuff it's almost like they're saying we don't really want to go into all of this with you paul like we just we don't want to go there here's what they say they replied we have had no letters from judea or reports against you from anyone who has come here. Here's what they're saying. We haven't been informed in advance about any of the beef between you, Jewish man Paul, and this group of leaders in Jerusalem, this inter-Jewish theological beef over the Messiah. We haven't heard anything in advance about any of that. Here's what they don't say. They've never denied hearing about Paul. They just say, we haven't heard any of those things about you. Why do we think they had some familiarity with Paul? The fact that they were willing to take up this, these were busy people. The fact that they were able to get an invitation from Paul and they say, oh, we better drop everything that we're doing and go meet with the guy indicates that they had heard probably something, they knew something of him or at least in their network, they could get some intel on him. They they say, we've received no letters from Judea. Verse 22, but we want to hear what you believe. In other words, we don't want to hear about any more of this beef, but we do want to hear about what you believe. Now, here's a bad translation moment, and I'll fix it here. That sounded really arrogant. I don't mean that. There's a Greek word in here. I don't think that the NLT people translate very accurately. It's the word movement. For the only thing we know about this movement referring to Christianity, they call it a movement. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, I'd like to be part of a movement. That's not, the, it's the actual Greek word heresia, which sounds like what? Heresy. heresy or heretic. They're saying we know, the one thing we know about this heresy is that it's denounced everywhere. Now, I'm not intending to read too much into this. And I wouldn't spend time on this if I didn't think it would help you understand. It's very interesting to me that this group of Jewish people is not... Ready, willing, or able to explore more of the beef between Paul and the church in Jerusalem. Let's just be clear about what's going on here. Three days after getting to Rome, Paul's already met with the Christians. They met him 60 miles earlier. But Paul's heart is, everywhere he goes, is I'm going to get together with a local Jewish community. And in this case, he has, I think, three motivations. Number one, he wants to find out what they've already heard about him. He's like, If he knows in most communities that he's been in, the Jews there have been pretty influential over the Roman judge. And if you go back in the story to the times that he appeared before King Felix and then King Festus and then King Agrippa, none of those Roman judges had a heart to convict Paul all of them acknowledged there's no case here and the right thing for us to do is to acquit him and every time they chose not to, because of whom? This little group of upset Jews. Those upset Jews in each of those jurisdictions, their discontent was enough to forfeit Paul getting a fair trial three times already. Fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times. Paul's thinking, I need to at least find out what these people have already decided about me in their heart. Because if I'm going to stand before Caesar and these people are already predisposed against me, I'm not going to get a fair trial again. So let me find out what they've heard about my case already. He's assuming that they've heard the absolute worst, that some letters have come from Judea and they're already, you know, their their mind has already been down the rabbit hole, the conspiracy theories. They've gotten all the slanderous media. They've already been spun and Paul's. Second thing I want to do is offer a personal apologia or a defense. I want to find out what they know about me. They obviously know something, and then I want to at least, while I still have time, I want to tell them. I want to be very clear, and just for sake of time, I want to be very clear about three things. Number one, I didn't break any Jewish laws. I'm true blue Jew. I'm number two. I'm I'm innocent. So number one, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I've never turned my back on my people. I've never, despite what you've heard, I've never turned my back on my country or the temple, or the Jewish customs. Those things are not true. I am brother. Second thing I want you to know, I'm innocent. I've not broken any Jewish laws. I've not broken any Jewish customs. I've not broken any Roman laws, or any Roman customs. I've been through three trials and five defenses. No one has produced any. How many witnesses have they produced to testify against Paul so far in these five trials? None. How much evidence has been presented? None. And Paul says, here's the track record. I've I'm going to trial number six, and there has yet to be a witness that said I've done any of these things. I'm innocent. But I also want you to know that there could be a narrative being spun that I want to be in front of Caesar in order that I can turn the tables on the people who incarcerated me for the first place because I have the law on my side to be able to have these accusing Jews convicted. And Paul was worried that there was a narrative being spun that he was simply appealing to Caesar so that he could get revenge and turn the law against his own countrymen who betrayed him. And Paul's saying, the Jews have nothing on me legally, the Romans have nothing on me legally, and I have no beef with the Jews. Here's why I'm still in jail. I'm in jail because of a theological difference. We share the same hope. We have the hope of the Messiah. The the Jewish faith is built on the hope of a coming Messiah. And what he's saying is the disagreement is that I believe and I know because I've met and the scriptures prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah who has already come. Whereas the brothers who are angry with me, they insist Jesus was not the Messiah and because they have a long list of reasons why he's not the Messiah. He claimed that he and God were one, and the Jews believe that Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And so when Jesus comes saying, I'm also God, that's at least two gods. And then he talked about the Holy Spirit. That's three gods. That's heresy. Also, he was condemned to die on the tree. And in the Psalms and in the prophets, it says that cursed is any man who dies on the tree. And for these reasons, Jesus couldn't have been that person. And the fact that you're saying that he is, is heresia. And anybody who follows you or follows Christus, as he was called in Latin, anyone who follows him needs to be shut down and put to death. That is, we need to take up the mantle of the Old Testament fathers who would shut down and put to death people who would speak out against the religion. Paul's saying it's a theological beef. That's what the real issue is here. And so when he gets done speaking, he's basically saying, listen, there is an inter-Jewish beef between Those of us, me, who believes that Jesus is the Messiah and these other people who say he's not, it's a beef over Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the people in the room don't say, well, let's give our two cents on this. The first thing they say is, well, Paul, thanks for telling us, but we haven't heard any of that. So it kind of indicates to you that the Jews back in Judea and Jerusalem already knew that their charges were cooked up. They don't even pursue it any further. They just let it go now. They've run him as far as it is to Rome. He's out of sight, out of mind. But they also say this. They, they say, you know, we haven't heard any of those reports about you. And they stop right there. They don't talk anymore about this issue between Paul and the Jews in Jerusalem. They don't try and resolve it. They don't try and build community. They don't ask him any clarifying questions. They show no compassion, no empathy. It's almost like they're saying we don't want to touch this argument within our own people with a 10-foot pole. And that, to me, this time through stuck out like a sore thumb. And I was wondering, why, why do they not dig deeper into this, and then I had to do a little homework, and here's what I found out, and now it makes complete sense to me, Um, and it's back in, so this story happened, this part of the story happens about 61 AD, Paul's in Rome, between 49 and 50 AD, so about a decade earlier, in the city of Rome, Emperor Claudius was in charge. This was before Nero. So Emperor Claudius was in charge. And there were these violent riots that broke out in the street. And there was bloodshed and there was civil unrest. And it was only among the Jews. It was Jewish people living in Rome, rioting against other Jewish people living in Rome. And it reached such a point that Claudius issued the law to forcibly remove all Jews from Rome. They were all expelled and deported because of this violence. He shut Jews out of Rome. Now, two of the people who got shut out of Rome that had to be relocated end up in Ephesus, and we met them earlier in Acts. Do you remember who they were? Priscilla and Aquila. We learn earlier on in Acts that they had previously been Jewish citizens living in Rome, but they were expelled. Now, if you do your historical homework, you will find out, well, what were they rioting about? History tells us that there was debate, two camps of Jews. There's debate over a man named in Latin. All we know is the man's name in Latin was Christus. And one group of the Jews living in Rome had a view about Christus that another Jewish group in Rome did not have. And it was so divisive that they got violent in the streets. And the debate is, was it an actual human being that was alive in that name named Christus, who was just dividing everybody to the point where they got violent? Or is it in this case that the Christus they were divided over is what we would translate Christ? Well, it makes more sense that it was Christ versus just some normal Jewish guy named Christus. So what had happened was, what we believe historically happened, was 10 years before Paul comes to Rome and has this meeting in his living room of his apartment, riots break out among the Jews. In Rome, one group says Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The other group says Christ is not the Messiah. And they get so mad with one another that they spill out into violence in the streets to the point where it's pretty much like, you know, dad finally says, listen, both of you to time out. He shuts them all out. And he said, you can't come back in my lifetime. It wasn't until 54 AD when Claudius died that Jews were finally allowed to come back into Rome again and start building their lives again which is only six or seven years before Paul comes to town now, with that in mind, can you at least understand why when these Jewish leaders hear about another beef, inter-Jewish beef, over who Christus is, that they say, we want nothing to do with this. We've been there before. Does that make sense? Okay, They're just saying, "Like, look, Paul, we haven't heard anything about it, and we don't want to hear any more about it. However, verse 22, we do want to hear what you believe for the only thing we know about Christianity is that it's a heresy and it's denounced everywhere. So maybe you can kind of understand how this is like the first group of Jewish people who didn't have an opinion or want to have an opinion about the argument that Paul was having with Jerusalem. They're like, all this is going to end up in his violence and disagreement, and we've been down that road before, and we don't want to be back in the streets and kicked out of Rome again. Our families have finally just gotten back here. However, we'll come back at another time, which is... <laughs> It's a nice way for those of us that have that type of personality. We don't want to let a salesperson down. We're like, listen, I don't want to buy that today, but maybe then I'll come back later and buy it. So let's read verse 23. Um, So a time was set. Paul was like, great, when do you want to come back? (laughs) Let's set an appointment. A time was set, and on that day, a large number of people... Now, that's just interesting. This is fascinating to me. This is so like God to do something like this. Paul is a preacher, but he's a prisoner. He comes to town, he can't go to synagogue. So what's he do? He invites synagogue to come to him, and they come. And then he says, come back, and I'm going to give you the very best possible sermon I can. I'm going to give you... Uh, the long, I'm going to give you an exhaustive study of the Old Testament and show you everything about the kingdom of God and Jesus the Messiah through the Old Testament. And he's like, I'm going to give you the best sermon that I can. And so he can't go to the synagogue. He can't go find the church. He can't go find the pulpit. But guess what? God brings a congregation to him. I want you to know that there is no chain in your life that God can't break. There is no obstacle in your way that God can't creatively find a way for you to still redeem that time, even when you feel like you're waiting, even when you feel like you're in even when you feel like circumstances are pressing and limiting your resources and limiting your opportunities. God says, if your heart will just tune into what I'm doing, I'll bring the opportunities to you. I love this story. A large number of people come to Paul's lodging He, look at the verbs here, three different verbs. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and, this is an interesting phrase, tried, attempted to, do you see that next word? Persuade. Now, when do you need a persuasive speech to convince someone that is not convinced, right? Commercials are doing this to you all the time. I was talking with, Uh, one of our college students after the first service who's studying business at Goucher, and he and I were talking back and forth, and he's studying entrepreneurship. And I said, oh, do you watch Shark Tank? I was like, you know, learning, you know, he's like, oh, a little bit, why? And we got talking back and forth, and we were talking about different ways people advertise. And I said, if you look very carefully, you know, different businesses are trying to persuade you to do things, but for different reasons. They're not all trying to convince you that their product is better. For example, Papa John's, what do they say? Better ingredients, better. In other words, buy our pizza because it's better. What does Little Caesar say? Hot and, they don't tell you it's good. They ain't trying to tell you it's better. What they're saying is, come get so-so pizza, it's just going to be hot and ready when you get here. We'll give you pizza you don't have to wait for. There, and we were just talking about that, like persuading people. You have to know where you're, not everybody's trying to persuade you in the same direction. One says, come to us and pay more for better pizza. The other one says, we're not even trying to tell you our pizza's better. It's not even that good. It's cheap. <laughs> but it's hot and it's ready. And on some days you're like, look, I don't know many people that say, you know what? I, if all pizza were equal, I would go Little Caesars, 100 out of 100. Very few people say it's the best pizza. But why do we go there? It's cheap and it's ready, Right? So that's your business. That's your business bonus lesson for the day. Paul's trying to persuade. He's trying to persuade. About what? Not pizza. He's trying to persuade them about Jesus from what? What does he use as his source? The scriptures, which was the First Testament. Well, pastor, I'm just thankful that you've been preaching from the New Testament because, you know, it's not the Old Testament. And my, my favorite is people just immediately dismissing anything in the Old Testament that they, don't, that, really that they don't agree with or that they don't want to be convicted by. Well, that's Old Testament, pastor. Old Testament's awesome. First Testament's fantastic. Jesus is all through the First Testament, all through it, and we need it, and it's helpful. He uses the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, and he spoke to them. Here's a great phrase How would you like your teacher? He spoke to them how long? From morning until evening. Does that sound like any of the past stories of Paul? Do you remember another time he went a little long? Joker couldn't stay awake, went to the window where the cool breeze was. He's trying to stay awake. Sits in the window, and what happens? The spirit of slumber jumped all up on him. He falls out the window as though he was dead. And Paul's like, oh, to hold on, guys. I'm going to go check on my boy here. He might be dead. He goes down. He resuscitates him. They have a meal. He says, all right, everybody good? Everybody living? You're going to be all right, buddy? Stay away from the window. <laughs> you know, you sit up here where I can see. And he goes and finishes the sermon. What a dude. You can't make this stuff up. Like no, no historical writer in their right mind would make that up thinking that it's believable unless it happened. And all the eyewitnesses were alive to speak to it, right? So here's what Paul does. The church comes to him, he's like, all right, this might be my last sermon. I don't know. I don't know when they're gonna bring me before Caesar. I don't know if I have two years left or two days. I don't know. But I've got in front of me some Jews, I've got some brothers. And number one, I want to tell them about Jesus. And I am going to preach the gospel to the Jew first. And even if they don't receive it, I'm going, to stay, I'm going to stay right on the pattern. I'm going to go to the Jews first. And I'm going to pour out my heart to them. So we've already talked about the pattern. Paul goes to town, finds a synagogue, preaches to the Jews. Some agree, some disagree. And then the agreement ones get saved and the disagree ones get angry. Well, he comes to town. The Jews come to him. Synagogue comes to his place. He's preaching. Without even reading next, what do you think happens? Some believe, some don't. I'll tell you, if there's any moment I could go back to in history in the New Testament, this is in my top three. If I could sit in that classroom, pay the tuition for that one-day class, closest thing you've got is the book of Romans, I think. Because that's the letter that Paul is the most It's the least like, I'm writing this letter because I heard there's problems going on in your church. It's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to you, but I've got to put down on paper my full theology. Because if I die getting to you, I trust that if it can get to Rome, it'll get to the world. And so he sends it off in advance. Now, he does get there eventually. But the closest thing you've probably got to this sermon is Romans. And it's long. So he teaches from morning till evening. Let's find out how effective the world's possibly greatest evangelist ever was. Some were, what? Persuaded by the things he said. Here's what it means. They What's the opposite of persuaded? swayed Dissuaded, no? Okay. I need to shut down some of the voices in my head sometimes. Sorry. I don't need counseling. I just need focus, okay? So some, but what that means is... The people in the room were adversarial to the content before it started. You don't need to be persuaded if you already agree. But he's saying some people came into the room, and after a day filled of solid teaching from the Scriptures that they knew by heart already, some said, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah. Praise be to Jesus. And they came to Him in salvation. But others did not believe. Listen, doesn't that take some of the pressure off of you? Well, if I could just... You know, I, I, I'm just not, I'm never going to be good at telling people about Jesus' story or my story. I'm not Paul. Paul wasn't effective 100% of the time. Well, I say he was effective 100% of the time, but two things happen when you share this story. People, people either yield to it or they resist it, even when it's Paul. You're either bringing life to someone or you know what you're doing? This is kind of the, I don't want to say the dark side, but the heavy side, or you're heaping conviction onto somebody. You're heaping condemnation because now they're not innocent. It's like they're being tugged by the Holy Spirit to come closer and they're resisting it. Those two things are happening every time I preach. Your heart's either being softened or hardened. It's happening right now. Start talking about people's shoes, start talking about somebody else's stuff, then it's okay. All right? Well, Pastor, how many vests does one person need? That's fair. But if you've been here for 10 years, you know they're all 10 years old, so. <laughs> yeah. Some didn't believe. Now what happens? Ironically, the cycle continues. They argued back and forth. Here we go again. Christus comes up. There's two camps. People who believe is the Messiah and people who don't. They argue back and forth among themselves and so they leave. But not before Paul gets final say. To me, this is mic drop of all mic drops. I shudder at the intestinal fortitude it took for Paul to say what he's about to say to the people he's about to say. He is going to quote for them one of their beloved prophets. And he's going to say, this prophet described your reaction right now hundreds of years ago. And I want to hold up a mirror for you and show you that you are fulfilling what he said would happen when somebody would come to you and explain to you about the gospel. You're doing it right now. And so he, he quotes for them what they could have quoted along with him. Now, here's what he picks. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, and I quote, When you go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you won't understand. When you see what I do, you won't comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened. Their ears can't hear. It's not that their eyes have been shut. They have willfully closed their eyes. So their eyes can't see. Their ears can't hear. Their hearts can't understand, and they can't turn to me and let me heal them. End quote. Now me, Paul, I want you all to know this salvation from God that I've offered you today and you've rejected. I want you to know something else. You're going to love this, guys. Listen. It's also been offered to the Gentiles, and you know what? They'll accept it. Mic drop. Last thing Paul says in Romans. That's it. He completes this tragic cycle gospel goes to the jews first jews reject it gospel goes to the gentiles you see that all through acts well oh, pastor some jews did accept it absolutely absolutely some jews did accept and receive the gospel paul being a card carrying member of that crew but congregationally as a as a group they rejected it and he This is extremely powerful because I wonder if you've ever had an experience where you're talking to someone, you're explaining something to them, usually wives to husbands. You're explaining you've been very clear, and you can just tell by the look in their eyes they're hearing, but they don't understand. You do understand hearing and comprehending two different activities. It's possible for you to be hearing the words that comes out of somebody's mouth, and yet you don't get it. What Paul is saying is that when it comes to the gospel, if you're not getting it, it's because you don't want to get it. What he's saying is one of two things is going to happen in your human heart when people start to talk to you about sin, about holiness, about the broken relationship between us and God, about our brokenness and his perfectness about God's deep longing to be inseparable with you and the, and the impossibility of that because of sin. And God's solution to that is to make a bridge from you to him so you can be inseparable again. And it had to come through someone who hadn't sinned, and it was Jesus. And what it means is we can have a relationship with God, but it has to be on his terms. What he's saying is one of two things happens in the human heart and the human mind when the truth of the gospel goes into your ears. You either surrender to it, and you say, I really hope that's true. Or you say, mm, I don't like how that makes me feel. I really hope that's not true. And when you say, I don't want that to be true because of what it means about me or my life or my pride or my ego, how? What you start to harden. You close your own eyes. It's not that it's cryptic. It's that you're saying, I don't want to see it i don't want to understand it i don't want anybody to explain it to me i want it to be wrong i want it to be not true i want it to pass by me it's a hardening of the heart and what paul says is, i just want you to know that just because this room of anti-jesus people can't get on board with salvation you're not going to stop salvation just because there's a group of you that aren't on board with this i just want you to know God is gonna find some people who wanna be saved and the message is gonna go forward and it's gonna flourish and change the world. Salvation, even if you reject it, you won't stop it. Man, does that, that gives me such courage. Even when someone that you're trying to reach says no to Jesus, as hard as that is, I want you to know that just because they say no doesn't mean the gospel doesn't work. It doesn't mean that it's powerless. It doesn't mean that it stops. It keeps going. So what do we do with this whole mess? Well, let's finish the chapter because I'm out of time. And out of breath. For the next two years. And isn't two years a long time? And isn't it a short time? I guess it depends what you're waiting for, right? For two years. This is how Acts ends. And it's very unsatisfying to me in some ways. Paul lived in Rome. Now look at those next four words. Students. At his own expense. Let's just stop there and study this for a second. What are some responsible inferences you can make about that? What does that tell you about what Paul did for two years? Probably went back to work. Doing what? Working with leather, making tents. Oh man, what a lousy two whole years. He's waiting for trial. He's waiting for two years. Oh, that would drive me nuts. Waiting for two years to find a wife or find a husband. Waiting for two years to get done with my education. Waiting for two years for the doctor to call me back about my test results. Waiting for two years for my Amazon package to arrive. I wouldn't be able to focus on anything else. Well, what did Paul do while he's waiting? Can I just put myself on front street here? I hate waiting for anything usually do any of you love waiting have you been in a room with other people who are waiting they call it a waiting room what's the general attitude in that room a little tense a little anxious a little impatient some people feel like i'm going to be the one to take control of the situation and make sure that by my complaint i move things along And some of you work on the other side of that, and you have to make that person feel heard and also let them know there's not a thing you can do about it. You will be seen when it's your turn. You will be seated when your table is ready. You can come up to the ordering window when the person's latte in front of you is finally ready. I don't enjoy waiting, and this basically says Paul had to wait for two years. His whole life had a pause button, or did it? Here's what Paul did during his thumb-twiddling time. He welcomed all who visited him. He boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. Full stop. End of the book of Acts. Now, I'm like, Luke, this is awesome. Uh, What happened at the end of that two years? You obviously know. Or else you wouldn't have phrased it that way. What does Luke not tell us here? About the what? Paul's execution. Paul's execution or history students, if he was executed? This whole story is about Paul needs to go to Rome to stand before Caesar, stand before Caesar, stand before. He doesn't stand before Caesar in Rome or any of his other books. So did he stand before Caesar? Did he stand before Caesar at the end of this two years? Or because Caesar didn't appoint the proper prosecuting attorney that he had to do within 18 months in order for the case to stay valid, was Paul released at the end of two years because the Roman government's statute of limitations on that trial reset and he was set free, as many people believe? Did he get set free At the end of two years. And was he given a short period of time to do what his heart always wanted to do to get to Spain? And then a short time later, was he summoned back to Rome with a more ominous tone as we pick up in 2 Timothy about another trial? And when he got back to Rome, did he finally stand before Caesar? Did Caesar have him beheaded or was he stabbed? Was he murdered? History is a little mysterious here. In your study guide, I don't have time to go through it this morning. I dug deep into it. I quoted for you where we get some of these ideas from. I lean on what the church father Eusebius wrote. I think he, for whatever reason, after two years, Paul was set free for a short period of time. I do believe some historical reports that he spent that time in the western part of the Roman Empire, perhaps getting as far as Spain. I do believe that he did eventually stand before Nero. Well, how can you prove it? Well, Eusebius says so, but here's, here's... I'll be less historical and more spiritual. Didn't God tell him a million times? You're going to get to Caesar. You're going to get to Caesar. You're going to get to Caesar. Why would Luke have recorded that if he didn't get there? What would that say of the Lord? Yeah, he kept him safe through all this and that and the other thing and brought him through a shipwreck and Malta and fever and dysentery and all these other types of things. He gets to Rome. He brings a church to his house, and then he's going to let him die? I do happen to believe that he made it. To Caesar, and I do happen to believe that Eusebius said that Caesar had him executed. Well, now, why doesn't Luke tell us more? There's a couple leading theories. One theory is that Luke was compiling this entire book to be presented as evidence in Paul's trial before Nero. And so he ends it here because at this point, the document was finished and would have needed to be submitted as a legal dossier for Nero to be able to review that that chronicled Paul's legal journey up to this point. Now, the theory is that Luke knows exactly how Paul spent the rest of his days and didn't want to draw attention to it. Maybe he didn't want the story to end with people hearing that Paul got beheaded. Maybe that would have been a downer. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Two things that I can pull from this I want to leave you with. One, the perhaps... And I see this very clearly. Perhaps, I'm going to make sure I read it to you, right? Maintaining a soft heart towards the Lord is perhaps, I've only had a few days to wrestle this through, so I'm going to use perhaps here. It's perhaps the most important effort you could ever invest into your spiritual health. Do you see the results of a hardened heart in this story? You wonder what it looks like? someone who loves you with all their heart and cares about your life even more than their own can sit you down, look you in the eyes, and say, I'm going to take the risk of you hating me to tell you the truth about you. I'm willing to take the risk of you writing me off forever, maybe even making sure I die because I care so much about you. I have to show you something in your life that you don't have right. And that goes into that person's ears And not only does it not soften their heart, it makes them angry. That's what a hard heart looks like. A hard heart is incapable of ever having anybody tell them no. A hard heart knows everything and is not teachable. A hard heart will never take responsibility, never admit that they're wrong. A hard heart is not shaped. It's not moldable. A hard heart gets hard by resisting the voice of the Lord. You know how your heart gets hard? Here's how it happens. Whenever you feel God speaking to you, whenever you hear his voice and he says, daughter, son, I need you to cut this and remove this from your life. This is not healthy for you. Hard heart says, no, thank you. Or it says, "Mm, let me think about it. Maybe later. Why? Because like a a weightlifter in the gym, they're trying to get bigger muscles by working against resistance. I'm doing this motion, making you think I'm a weightlifter, and you all know better. (laughs) But that's the part of your heart. You don't want to get strong. Spiritual growth only happens through surrender. It never happens through resistance of the good things. Now, we want to resist the evil one. You want that muscle to get stronger. But there's a track record that the Jews have had historically of moments where God would speak clearly to them and they'd harden their heart and resist it. What kind of clay do you want to be on the potter's wheel? Do you want to be the kind that resists God and resists God and resists God and said, no matter what you're trying to make me into, I'm going to resist, I'm going to customize, I'll say yes to this, no to that. You know what happens after all? You get that hard and recalcitrant and formed that the only option God ever has of making and molding you into the man and the woman he wants you to be is he has to break you. Soften you so he can mold you again. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 3. This is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That's what Israel did when they rebelled and when they tested me in the wilderness. That's good advice. The best effort you can probably make in your Christian life is saying, Lord, I want to keep a soft heart. Because guess what? When someone puts their hands on you and God's hands are only meant to help you, not to break you. When he puts his hands, if your heart is soft, you're going to bend, you're going to mold, you're going to be formed. But if your heart is already hard, what happens when he starts? You're going to crack and break. And what we see in this story is what the end result of people saying, I'm hearing truth going in, but I don't want it to be true. I don't want it to deal with me. I don't want to change. I don't want to do it now. Their heart got hardened. And Paul says, This is the result. You'll get to the point. The end result of this is that truth can go in and not move you at all. In fact, when truth goes in, you just get even more stuck in your ways. Don't be that person. Well, how do I not do that person? Here's how immediately say yes to Jesus every time you hear his voice. Say yes right away. We teach our boys, I will obey right away. Now, I will tell you, not very successful in that at this point. Give me a few more years. But can you say that of your relationship with your dad? When he puts something in my heart, and it's usually to start or to stop something, to add or to cut out something, to repeat or to cease something. When you hear his voice, do you say yes right away? Do you say no right away, or do you try and take the middle ground? I'm going to say yes, but not right now. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. It's not a surrender of your will to the Lord. So I'll leave that there. I gave you a bonus message, so let me give you the final point that I wish I could preach deeper on. I can't. I'm like, how did Paul not go completely crazy in this two years of waiting? I hate waiting. Not my favorite thing to do. If I could eliminate anything from my life, it would be waiting. And yet, I've spent most of my life waiting for something. How about you? I mean, when I was little, I waited for things differently. It was like I waited to be old enough to have a later bedtime. I waited for Santa. I waited for... You know, to be old enough to go to middle school. And then I waited to be old enough to get to high school. And then I couldn't wait to go to, to be 16 so I could drive because I thought it would set my life free. What a disappointment that was. And I couldn't wait to be 18 so I could be officially an adult. I couldn't wait to go to college so I could learn about the future. And after a week of college, I couldn't wait to be done with college. And then I was like, I can't wait to have a job. And then when I got a job, I couldn't wait to have an apartment. And after a week, I said, man, someday this is small. Maybe someday I'll have a house. I wanted to get married, and when we got married, we wanted to have kids, and we waited for kids, and then we had kids, and we're like, I can't wait till they get old enough to move out. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I can't wait to have a house. And then Dave Ramsey came along. I can't wait till the house is paid off. And I've just spent most of my wife' life waiting for something, and yet every beautiful thing that's been brought into my life has been brought into my life while I was waiting for something. And a lot of us see waiting for anything as wasted time. And yet, this man named Paul cracked the code. He was waiting to stand before Caesar and find out whether he was going to live or die. Be set free or be beheaded. I've never had to wait for that. I don't know what my psychological condition would be. He didn't know how long he was going to be waiting. And yet... I can look at that story and say, "This man wasted no time. You're waiting for something today." My message is not how to accelerate that timeline. You know, your waiting is the result of your timeline being out of sync with someone else's. You're ready. It or they or he or she are not ready. Thus, you wait for something, and you feel as though I can't be at ease until everything gets on my timeline and it creates anxiety and worry. And that's why we don't like waiting. Now, I can't tell you how to make waiting fun, enjoyable, but I can tell you this by purposing each moment, by finding God's purpose in each moment, your time spent waiting does not have to become time spent wasting even while you're waiting, there is a purpose of God that can be found as you wait. Can I just share these last worship team once you come back? There's a couple other letters that Paul wrote in this two-year time period. One of them is his letter to the Philippians. And here's what he writes describing his living conditions and what he's doing while he's waiting in Rome. And I want you to ask yourself, is this the testimony of a man who is afraid, who is frustrated, who is bored by his waiting? Here's what he writes, Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, everything that has happened to me here in Rome has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, listen, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a remarkable testimony? He's saying, while I've been waiting, I've been chained to people who are literally captive audiences, and these guards are chained to me, and I'm saying, what do you all want to talk about? Nothing. I got something I want to tell you about. When he's teaching his Bible college classes, guess who's there? The guards. And he's telling the Philippians, Jesus is getting famous among the palace guards while I'm waiting. waiting. Hasn't God ever brought you into a conversation with somebody you never would have talked to unless you were waiting? If not, go wait somewhere today. I guarantee you, you'll get into a conversation. How about, how about this one? This is I don't know if, it, if this is even more a favorite thing to me, but I didn't see this until this year. I don't know why I never saw that. Philippians 4.22. All the rest of God's people here in Rome, all the Christians here in Rome, send you greetings, especially those in do you see this? Those, in, those who are listening on podcasts, I'm sorry. Those in Caesar's household, let me read it all again. All the rest of God's people here in Rome send you greetings to especially those in Caesar's household. You know what that means? Caesar's family were hearing about the gospel. They were receiving it and now were considered part of the body of Christ. That doesn't do anything for you. It does a lot for me. Here is a guy who was waiting, and he said, "I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm going to find purpose in my waiting." And because of that, we have part of the New Testament and salvation coming to Caesar's household. What are you waiting for? I don't really care. Who are you waiting on? Are you waiting on him? Well, no, I'm waiting for him to figure that. Okay, while you're waiting for him, how about waiting on him? Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. While you're waiting for that package to arrive while you're waiting for the doctor to see you while you're waiting for the economy to turn around while you're waiting for interest on new home loans to get down under 7% while you're waiting on a decision from somebody else while you're waiting on the house to be paid off or the, to get your down payment together while you are find purpose because guess what you know what when you're done waiting for that you know what you're going to do You to wait for something else. I don't want you to be in your 90s and say, I've spent my whole life miserable because I was waiting for things that didn't need to rob me of the joy of finding purpose in every moment. Because I'm playing myself forward and saying, you know, I was waiting for this season of my life thinking that when I got there, I wouldn't be waiting for anything else. I just got here. And now I'm waiting for something else. And I'll get there and I'll be waiting for something else. I don't want to be in my 70s and say, well, now I'm Lord willing, I'm retired and, uh, and I'm looking back over my life and I'm saying, man, look at all the, purpose that I missed because I was just consumed with waiting for something waiting is inevitable but there's a purpose in every moment I encourage you to find it let me pray every day we gotta close I don't know how many sermons you got this morning I'm sorry but it was more than one so I guess if I gave you three today I owe you one third over the next couple weeks and then we'll, we'll even up but I hope that something I, I don't know something in there was useful for you that's not arrogance that's because I know that the Holy Spirit yeah I didn't make this up on my own Holy Spirit helps me he gives me a gift and I know that he puts things in my heart to get through my human filter because he knows who's going to be here and what you need to hear so yeah I can go home and be critical of my communication but I will not doubt the truth of God's word and I know that it doesn't return void so whatever it is that you heard today in seed form you now have a choice do you receive it or do you resist it do you try and get out of here as fast as you can so you can forget about what I said today and just try and not be ignorant? That won't be work. You're, that won't work. You are accountable for what you heard today. You're accountable for what you do with it, for how you test it, for how you receive it. And if it's not true, then you're responsible to just spit it out of your mind. But I at least encourage you to do your due diligence of investigating that thing to see if it's true or not. But if you know that it's true, if you know the Holy Spirit was using me or Moses or Suba or Keith or anybody else as an instrument to speak to you today, don't make the mistake that our ancestors have made by hardening your heart. Receive that and say, yes, Lord, I will with your help. Yes, Lord, I will surrender. Yes, Lord, I will step up. Yes, Lord, I will reconsider. Yes, Lord, I do agree. Yes, Lord, I, I will increase or decrease. Yes, Lord, I will cut that out or add that to. Yes, Lord, I will return to this or I will distance from. Yes, Lord, whatever it is that you receive, keep a soft heart. It's not your father trying to destroy you. It's your father trying to grow you. And if you're waiting on God for something, if you're waiting on life for something, I can't tell you how to speed that up, but I can tell you how to make the most of your time while you wait. Ask God to show you his purpose that you can be focused on in this moment. Just like Paul. He welcomed everybody who came across his path. He was ready to tell his story and Jesus' story, and no one tried to stop him. May you be ready in waiting. If you need salvation from jesus today he's ready to extend that to you this morning it's free you just need to tell him that you're ready you need to tell him you know you need to be saved you know that he can save you and that if you ask him that he will save you and you just need to use your words and say that to jesus today he will see the sincerity of your heart and he will save you he will forgive you He will send his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. He will begin a journey today where you will be day by day, gradually. He will transform you into the image of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit living within you. The move is yours. What will you do with what you heard today? Is today the day you say yes to Christ? If so, right now you can pray a simple prayer. Jesus, I know I need to be saved because I've sinned. Forgive me. I believe you are everything the Bible says that you are. I feel you tugging on my heart right now. You're the Lord, you're my savior. You're perfect, you died in my place, you rose again. I invite you to come live in me and change all of me. I hold nothing back from you today. You're the Lord, I'm not. I receive your free gift of salvation. Thank you for saving me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, you're saved. You don't have to do anything else. Here's a personal favor, your option. I'm going to count to three. If you prayed that prayer with me, slip up a hand, make eye contact with me. You can put it right back down. Just want to celebrate with you. I want you to make that concrete. One, two, three. Anybody pray with me this morning? Make sure I don't miss anybody. Just wait one more moment. Anybody at all? Praise God. Awesome. All right, everybody, you can open up your eyes, lift up your heads, and if you're willing and able, why don't you stand with me this morning? We're all gonna be praying this week for soft hearts and a purpose for every moment, right? That's what you're with me on. That's something we can all pray year round. They're central to who we are as Christians. Lord, help my heart stay soft and help me to see a purpose in every moment so that I don't let my life tell me when I can or can't get after my work for you, that I can find purpose in every moment. Our prayer team is coming. They're here. If you'd like prayer about anything at all, let us pray with you this morning. Our team's here to serve you uh, by receiving our our tithe, the Lord's tithes and your offerings. So if you would like, if your part, part of your worship is to give to the Lord through this local church, we welcome you to do that. Those of you who have given online, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Over the next few weeks, I'll be able to bring some testimony to you about some just God things that are happening for this church financially that in and of itself has been a lesson for me I think of all the time I spent stressing over a lot of these things and I look back I was just wasted time if I could have just trusted hopefully the next time I go through a season like that I've now grown to a place where I can be steady in seasons of uncertainty because I trust the great shepherd to give us what we need and he will defend his reputation for that So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing with Keith and with the worship team. We're gonna give. If you'd like prayer, please come. Then Pastor James will come and dismiss us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for making sure we got the book of Acts. Thank you. I think of what you had to engineer to make sure that these words made it to us today, despite everybody who tried to stifle it, shut it down, destroy it, burn it, bury it, outlaw it. Your word is true. It's powerful. It changes our hearts it's living and active. Help us to embody things that we read in the story that we're challenged by, that we would be soft-hearted towards you and soft-hearted towards others. And that even as we wait, that we will be attentive and aware of how you can purpose each moment. That even as we wait, there's ways we can serve and accomplish your great will for our lives. Lord, we trust our finances to you first and foremost. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to reinvest. The, the monies that are given to this church and ministry that continues to meet the needs of this church, our state, and our world. In your name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.